This week I heard a pastor talking about his Christmas Eve Eve sermon, and I said, that's not a thing. Yes, it is. That's an Advent sermon. <laughs> I'm making a point here okay. that we're not to Christmas yet. Okay. Some people don't realize this, but the 12 days of Christmas are not the 12 days leading up to Christmas. They're the 12 days after Christmas. So what we are celebrating today is the fourth Sunday in Advent. Now next week will be Christmas time, and that's the time when we will celebrate Christmas. The reason why I'm making a point about this is because I think that we make meaning of our lives by the way that we mark time. And if we're marking time by the countdown to Christmas, we are being formed by this consumer calendar. Um, you know, how many days left do I have before I get my presents, right? But instead, the Christian calendar, this Advent season, forms us by having us live into the story of Jesus. And I think that's really important. So at the same time, you know, we're doing sort of a hybrid thing uh, today. And so being a bit hypocritical here, this is kind of our Christmas service in a way. But today we are going to conclude our Advent teaching series, which we've been calling Advent in Narnia. Uh, and we're going to see that at Advent, the church journeys toward the celebration of the birth of Christ on a, on a particular path, on a particular passage. This passage isn't uh, always easy. It requires something of us. The way of Jesus isn't the way of cheap grace. The way of Jesus is the way of, of taking inventory of our souls. The way of Jesus requires us to look inward, to interrogate our own motives, to search our inward thoughts, and to lay them before God, opening ourselves up to God's refining fire. So the psalmist writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So the way of Jesus calls us to investigate the ways that we are being formed, and the ways that the world is malforming us. And to, to critique those ways, to call into question the systems and the patterns of this world. So this morning we're going to explore an Advent theme that is not the most popular theme, it's not going to pack out stadiums, it's not, it's not the most uh, joyous theme, but we're going to look at this theme that will have the power to transform our actual lives. Not just thoughts in our heads, but the way we actually live. We're going to look at a figure in the Advent story who preaches a message of repentance. But before we dive into the text, let's pray for the Spirit's illumination. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we know that we, we cannot produce true repentance in ourselves. Not through willpower, not through trying really, really hard. We know that repentance is something that we can only give ourselves to you and you grant repentance. I ask that you would give us the courage to submit our hearts to you this morning. To be transformed, to be moved, to have our entire lives trajectories changed. And to do that, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit. 
We need your Holy Spirit to come and to illuminate the text to us this morning. Apply the text to our hearts and to our minds. Teach us. Be our teacher this morning, we pray, Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So at the beginning of each gospel, uh, we are introduced to a figure named John. But there's a whole bunch of Johns in the gospel. Uh, so they have to give you each John uh, like a distinguishing characteristic. You have uh, John the Beloved. He's the one that you know, claims that title for himself. He's like, I was the one Jesus loved the most. There is John, the brother of James, who's one of the sons of thunder. We don't know why they got that nickname. We can only guess. And then there's John of Patmos, who was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He's the one uh, who got the vision in the book of Revelation. And then there's a John who is sometimes called John the Baptizer. But I like the title, John the Forerunner. Because I think that uh, Forerunner tells us about the relationship of his ministry to the ministry of Jesus. John's ministry was a ministry preparing the way for Jesus. In fact, the authors of all four Gospels see in, Jesus, in John's ministry the fulfillment of all of the Hebrew Bible leading up to the advent of Jesus. So I'm going to read from the, uh, Matthew's account of the Gospel, and I'm going to read in the New Living Translation. You're welcome to follow along in whatever translation you have, uh, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. But I'm going to read from chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In those days... John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt excuse me, around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Verse 7. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you? to flee the coming wrath. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are the descendants of Abraham. Which, that means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the tree. Yes, Every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit, will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I. So much greater that I am not worthy even to be a slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gather up the wheat in his barn by burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Merry Christmas! <laughs> this is a wonderful, joyous text. This reminds me of the, uh, the meme that goes around every year. 
Happy Advent, you brood of vipers. John the Forerunner's message isn't typically what we think of when we think of Christmas. Uh, but it's an important Advent message. Because in Advent, we are trying to keep ourselves from rushing to Christmas. We are trying to prepare ourselves uh, for this celebration and honor the celebration of Christmas. Christmas is famously a story that includes a refugee family escaping danger who finds safe asylum in an area of a home where the animals are kept. So we commonly hear at Advent that we need to make room for Jesus in our lives. That's what we hear. But that, I feel like, is a bit abstract. What does it actually mean to make room for Jesus, to prepare a place for Jesus in our lives? Well, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John start with this message of repentance. This is how we prepare ourselves. This is how we make room for Jesus. We repent. And John the Forerunner was the last of a long line of prophets who preached a message of repentance. Figures who loom large in the tradition like, like Elijah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Hebrew prophets had a particular calling that was not an easy one. In fact, they often were killed for their message of repentance. The Hebrew prophet's job was to proclaim the word of God. And this is why Luke's gospel says that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. So the Hebrew prophet's were these people who had a wonderful encounter with God that they were trying to communicate to the people of God. And that word was often a word of repentance. And that message was often embodied in the prophet's own life. They often had these dramatic displays that they would use to communicate this message. For example, Elijah famously had a barbecue contest. Remember that? Whoever's God can light this barbecue first wins. It's a dramatic reenactment, a dra dramatic embodiment of that message. And that was a call to repentance. You worship Baal, but God, Yahweh God, is going to light this barbecue on fire. Isaiah famously stripped naked and walked around barefoot to uh, symbolize and embody the coming judgment on Egypt. Jeremiah wore a yoke for oxen and the, the yoke was broken while he wore it, which is a difficult thing to do. Don't try that at home. Ezekiel laid on his left side for over a year. Don't think about that too long, because you'll, you'll be weirded out. But perhaps the most dramatic demonstration was Hosea. God called Hosea to marry a prostitute to symbolize God's love for Israel, even though Israel was consistently unfaithful to God. So John the Forerunner stands in this long tradition of prophets who've had this powerful encounter with God and have a message for God's people of repentance and are going to dramatically demonstrate that message and embody that message in a way. So how does he do it? He goes down to the river Jordan and he calls people to be immersed in the water for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, can anybody tell me, little Sunday school moment here, why the River Jordan? Anybody know? What's the significance of the Jordan River? Shout it out. 
Nobody? Come on, nerds. Jordan, River Jordan. This is a painting depicting the Israelites crossing the River Jordan into the Promised Land. They had to cross the River Jordan to enter the Promised Land, the land that God had promised them. So the Jordan River is like this threshold. It's like this beginning place. The offspring of Abraham are promised that they will be a new people when they enter into the land. God will be their God and they will be God's people. They'll be freed from slavery, bondage in Egypt. Remember that? And they will now be an independent, free people to worship God the way God intended. So we could say that they're a new people with new passion and new purpose, right? Kind of like us. John's baptism isn't just symbolic of washing away sins like we think. We tend to think baptism is symbolic of washing away sins, but John's baptism is a symbol of a new exodus. A new exodus out of slavery and into this new community. A new way of being human. A new way of worshiping God as a community. And recommitting themselves to the covenant. The covenant with God. A renewed relationship with God. That is what John's baptism is all about. John's baptism for repentance was about a new way to live. Now in America, when we talk about repentance, what we, what we often think of is we think of sorrow. I feel bad for my sins. I feel bad and I want to be forgiven. And then when we think of forgiveness, we think, I want a blank check. I want to just have my account cleared, debts wiped clean. And that's what we think of. I feel bad, and then I get the blank check. Yay! That's what Americans think. But that's not at all what John preaches. This is what John preaches. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Oops. <laughs> Americans don't like that part. <laughs> don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are the descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the tree. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Hallelujah. Amen. Do you feel the spirit? <laughs> Americans don't read that part very often. We're like, skip over that verse. I just want to feel bad for my sins, and I just want to get that blank check. Right? In reality, repentance isn't a feeling that you have, and, and, and then you receive a blank check because you have that feeling. In reality, repentance is turning to God. And forgiveness is the renewal of the covenant, a relational bond that needs to be maintained. Forgiveness isn't like a, a, a transaction, like when, um, when ambassadors have diplomatic immunity and so they get their parking tickets are you know, just forgiven. That's not how it works. Jesus said this, and this is a hard word. He said, if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. 
That's a hard word for Americans. We just want to feel bad and get that blank check. But John, the forerunner, confronts us with a hard word of repentance, a return to covenant relationship with God. We are prone to wander. We, are, we live in this world full of distractions and tempting idols. Repentance is the act of turning to God and of turning away from the powers that have us under their spell. Isn't it interesting that repentance is the turning, not the sorrow? So this is called Advent in Narnia. We've been trying to highlight themes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Advent themes. And so uh, this week we're going to meet a character who reminds us of John the Forerunner. He's a little bit half human, half beast, kind of like John with his camel hair and eating locusts. His name is Mr. Tumnus. And uh, we, we, we encounter Tumnus as soon as we enter Narnia, kind of the way that we encounter John the Forerunner as soon as we begin the Gospel stories. And in this scene, Tumnus has invited Lucy, who we met three weeks ago, into his home for tea, and he has sung her a Narnian lullaby, and she has fallen asleep. Hopefully this works. Let's try to play the clip. he was currently doing. He felt that sorrow that we typically associate with repentance. But that wasn't the repentance. He was still doing it. He said, I'm kidnapping you. He felt bad, but he's still doing it. The repentance was what? When he decided, I'm not going to turn her over to the white witch. I'm going to rescue her. When he reversed course, 
That was the repentance. See how we've associated sorrow and feeling bad for our sins with repentance, but it's actually not repentance at all? In Luke's gospel, the crowds that have come to hear John preaching the word of God, they ask him, what should we do? And here's what he says. The person who has two tunics must share with the person who has none. And the person who has food must do likewise. Do you hear anything about feeling bad? <laughs> you should feel bad that you have two tunics. You should feel bad that you have food and someone else doesn't. He doesn't say that. He says, give them one of your tunics. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and they said, teacher, what should we do? And he said, collect no more than you are required to. Did he say, feel bad that you're a tax collector? No, he didn't. <laughs> He told them, oh, and soldiers came and asked, as for us, what should we do? And he told them, take money from no one by violence. It's really hard to be a soldier and not employ violence. That's kind of your job. Or by false accusation and be content with your pay. John's vision of repentance is a restoration of wholeness, being made whole in relationship to others. Repentance is a turning from the wrong course of action to the right course of action. We could say repentance is course correction. John's vision of repentance is restorative justice, not retributive justice. John doesn't want to see these people wail and cry. He wants to see them make things right in the world. Do you see that? That's a huge difference. Too often in American churches, we talk about feelings and not action. People feel repentant, so they believe they're forgiven. When John and Jesus talk about repentance, they're talking about a change in a person's life trajectory. You were going this direction, and then you changed course, and you went this direction. Remember I told you about the, the Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus fought against the Romans in the Jewish wars, but then he lost and he said, better, uh, if you can't beat them, join them. So he joined the Romans, but he tells this story of when he was in Galilee trying to recruit soldiers to fight the Romans. And what he said to them was, repent and believe in me. Sound familiar? He wasn't saying, feel bad and believe some facts in your head, he wanted them to come with him and fight Romans and possibly die. To repent and to believe in Jesus is to give our allegiance to Jesus, is to change our lives' trajectory. It's not just a feeling in our hearts, it's about how we actually live. As I've been reflecting on this theme of repentance these, these past few weeks, a thought occurred to me that's not fully formed, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna try it out, okay? So bear with me. Here's the thought how it occurred to me. Why are we so polarized in the church in America? What's with this polarization? Why can't we talk to one another? Why can't we be civil with one another? Why can't we love one another? We have followers of Jesus in this country who find themselves on two sides, two camps, two teams. On one side, 
there are those who prioritize tradition and affinity and security and liberty. And on the other side, there are those who prioritize progress and inclusivism and diversity and justice. And this is often called the culture wars. You ever heard that, the culture wars? What I think is feeding this divide, this is my, this is my unformed thought I'm trying out, is I think it's self-righteous indignation. That's what I think is feeding the divide. On both sides, there's a steady stream of outrage. I'm outraged. I feel really mad about those people over there. <laughs> people aren't looking for course correction. They just want to feel angry. They're not looking for solutions to real challenges. They just want to feel outraged. For example, Christians are leaving the church on both sides. On the conservative side, a, Christ, a conservative hears the pastor say that Jesus was a refugee, and they're outraged. Or that black lives matter. Ugh, how can you say that? And they leave the church. I, uh, I heard a conservative pastor in San Diego. He said he was preaching a series through the minor prophets. And every week, somebody came up to him immediately, as soon as he finished preaching, someone would meet him there at the pulpit and say, why do you keep preaching about this social justice stuff? <laughs> He's like, I'm preaching the Bible. <laughs> this is the minor prophets. That's all they talk about. <laughs> I can't help it. But on the other side, progressives are outraged at conservatives. So they're leaving the church. They're, they're proudly calling themselves spiritually homeless now. I don't go to church. I'm spiritually homeless. That's a good thing, apparently. I don't know. And they say they're ex-evangelicals or whatever, right? New names, they have new names for everything. And they still love Jesus, they just don't love Jesus' body, right? Christians leaving the church because of feelings. But here's the thought, here's the thought how, how it's formed in my mind. The kind of repentance that John preached cannot coexist with self-righteous indignation. I'm going to say that again. The kind of repentance that John the forerunner preached cannot coexist with self-righteous indignation. If you're repentant, you can't be self-righteously indignant at the same time. If you're, if you're corporately repenting, entering into the waters of baptism, remember? Baptism is about forming a new people. It's a trajectory in our lives. It's a new way of being human. It's a new human community. If you're entering into that kind of repentance, you can't maintain that self-righteous indignation. Because you recognize you're not God. I'm not God. I need God. I need to repent. Repentance undermines the polarization that is fed by our self-righteous indignation. Now, few, few disclaimers, okay? Nobody likes repentance. I don't like repentance. <laughs> repentance doesn't feel good, okay? Um, I'm not very good at repentance, okay? I'm just putting myself out there. I'm not preaching this message because I've mastered repentance. I'm really bad at it. 
That's why I'm preaching this message. Because I need Advent to remind me that I'm not God. And I need God. I need to bring myself to God. Here's another thing about repentance. We don't like to repent when we're innocent. We like to say, I didn't do it. Somebody else did it. They're guilty. Let them repent. But here's the thing about repentance. John was innocent. And he's the one that called Israel to this, this baptism of repentance. Jesus was innocent. What did he do? He, he answered that call. He went out there and got baptized. So this week I've been rereading a book by one of my professors, Dr. Sunshan Ra, called Prophetic Lament. He talks about Jeremiah's lament. Jeremiah was innocent, but he lamented corporately on behalf of Israel. Here's what Dr. Ra writes. Corporate sin must be acknowledged. In the same way that Jeremiah acknowledges corporate responsibility and offers prayers of confession for our sin, we are challenged to understand the corporate aspects of human sinfulness. Jeremiah sets an example of the prophetic call to empathize with the people. How are 21st century Christians embracing that prophetic role? Or do we do this? I didn't do it, so I'm not going to repent. Or do we repent on behalf of all? Repentance is not silence in the face of injustice or drawing false equivalences between oppressors and oppressed. Scripture teaches that the oppressed, uh, that, that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That God brings low the mighty and exalts the weak. But repentance is recognizing our own complicity in systems of injustice. We're all tangled up in them. Recognizing humanity's corporate need for God's mercy. One of the things that I'm becoming more and more aware of is that we often hold each other to impossible standards. Repentance teaches us that we learn and grow from making mistakes, from getting it wrong. And then God helps us to course correct. We're not going to grow in unity and learn from one another if we're constantly holding each other to the standard of perfection. Have you noticed that? The moment somebody messes up, they're out. Now they're one of them. Now they're on the other side, right? Repentance is an especially important discipline for a community like ours. Because a community like ours, one that is committed to racial justice, one that is committed to being a multi-ethnic, multicultural community, is going to be constantly tempted for the world's divisions to creep into our fellowship. And for us to draw those dividing lines and become polarized, that's going to be a constant temptation for this church. So that's why we have to cultivate this discipline of repentance, of course correction, of changing our path in life when we encounter error, when we are in sin. And we need to practice repentance so that we can empathize with those who are in error. Right? We also need God's mercy. So let me close with this. We don't have much time left in Advent. So I think we have to take advantage of the days we have left. Just a few days. And prepare our hearts. Cultivate this 
this attitude of openness towards God's repentance. God course-correcting our lives. How is the Holy Spirit nudging you today to course-correct? How is the Holy Spirit nudging you tomorrow to course-correct? And how will the Holy Spirit be nudging you for the rest of your life? What are the sins that you feel utterly innocent of, but the Holy Spirit is calling you to prophetically repent on behalf of, of other people? On behalf of your tribe, on behalf of your people, on behalf of your nation. In doing this, we join with John the Forerunner in preparing the way of the Lord. John's gospel and Jesus' gospel was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means that before the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we got to repent. <laughs> Let's pray. God, we... We come to you this morning in need of your mercy. We come to you this morning recognizing that we are not God. That we are creatures created by you. And we are in need of forgiveness. I ask that you would grant us the courage to press into this vision of repentance as actually changing the way we live. Not just feeling bad inside. Not just feeling sorrow, but actually course-correcting the trajectory of our lives. I pray that your Holy Spirit would nudge us, would move us, would draw us toward repentance. I pray for this community, that we would be a community that shows the power of repentance. That if we are a repentant community, we can forgive one another, we can course correct when we get off course. We don't have to hold each other to impossible standards. We can forgive one another when we hurt each other. And I pray that we would be a light in that way. That we could show the power of unity and love to the world that is so divided, so polarized right now. And the church that is polarized. Help us to be a community that seeks you and that continually places ourselves before your throne of grace. And we thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.